Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Barbara Oakley and Isabel Pigeot. Uh, Barbara is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. She's also Coursera's inaugural innovation instructor. And Isabel is the founder and CEO of Pluribus. She's also the co-author of Inclusion Around the Clock. We are going to have some fascinating conversations today, so I hope you stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Dr. Barbara Oakley, who is a professor of engineering at uh, Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. She's Michigan's Distinguished Professor of the Year and Coursera's inaugural uh, innovation instructor. It's so nice to have you here. Oh, well, it's such a pleasure to be here, Diane. Well, I was looking forward to this. I should also note that you are a New York Times bestselling author, which is amazing. Um, I want to get a little background on you just to, for those who have not followed you and would like to know more, can you just give me your background of how you got to this uh, level? Oh, well, <laughs> I was terrible at math and science ah, growing up. So well, you go into engineering. my way through. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I enlisted in the Army. I learned Russian. And then I found to my great surprise that following your passion is not necessarily the best of advice, Uh Uh, especially when you pick a passion that doesn't have a lot of uh, need for people uh, working in, uh, in that position. So I had actually put myself in a kind of a box by just only following my passion and learning what I wanted to learn. And so when I got out of the military at age 26, I decided to broaden my passion, which is what I should have done before, which it means not only following your own passion, but also kind of using some common sense insight about what's going on in the greater world and adding some of those uh, skills to your arsenal of of what you know and what you can do. And so I started studying math and science at age 26. Remedial (laughs) high school algebra is what I started with. And uh, it was very scary at first, but I used some of the same language study um, approaches that I'd learned at the Defense Language Institute. And by golly, it worked. And that's why I'm a professor of engineering today. Wow. 
you know, I, I was uh, loved algebra. I had this great uh, teacher in seventh and eighth grade that would just scream at the chalkboard and and, <laughs> and climb up on his desk and do these crazy things, and he, he got me into into it. It was, um, you know, if it was like x plus two equals y, he he'd yell at the two. You know, <laughs> he'd go, you get off there, get off there, and he'd scream. And I'm so oh, I got to get rid of the two. You know, I, whatever it was. You know what I mean? You you think what you had to do, and. Um, I, I thought, wow, you know, I just love when people give you this passion for learning. And you wrote a book, How to Learn. Um, you've written a lot of books, A Mind for Numbers. I'm looking at your list. It's just staggering. How many books have you written? Oh, gosh, I forget. I think it's it, by, let's see, I've got two in production right now, so it'll be 11. But I go to kind of related but different topics. So mm-hmm. I, I often have sort of new perspective on things. Yeah. But one thing I would that you just said that is fascinating and right in line with what I've discovered about learning from neuroscience, and that is the first thing you have to do to get students' attention to teach is to get their attention. Right. right? You... you they have to be paying attention to what you're saying if they're going to get anything out of what you're saying. Yeah. And your teacher, he was very perceptive. One of the things you can do to grab people's attention is to use unexpected motion. Mm-hmm. And, and that what that does is it gives these little dopamine bursts when you have a, like an unexpected good thing that happens that releases what's called phasic dopamine in your brain. And that phasic dopamine, actually all the neurons around that time, that half an hour or so that you're getting this, these little boosts of, uh, of dopamine, that helps make connections between the neurons that are being used at that time. And that actually greatly enhances your learning. So that's part of why you were so successful. This teacher had a um, probably a sneaky, mm-hmm. unconscious understanding yeah. of how to help people learn. You know, it's funny. He was a real introvert otherwise. Um, I, I dedicated my book on curiosity to him. And he, he was a real influencer in my life. And, and when I studied curiosity, uh, you know, I've also found out the release of dopamine with that. And, and that was interesting to me just because I'd been worked as a pharmaceutical rep for 15 years and all the background on that you know I'd love to tie in the you know just the the biology the psychology and uh, uh, you know a lot of the factors of my business courses incorporate a lot of these things and you you mentioned how perceptive he was I I write about curiosity and perception maybe because of this guy I don't know he would put the trash can on his head and he'd get in the closet and yell like at you know like might as well be teaching from the closet and everybody would be laughing you know because it was just funny to see this guy acting crazy but it, it helped us learn and uh you help people learn as we talked about and uh, i'm curious about how you got into some of these uh, different learning uh, environments uh, like coursera for example and and what you've learned from getting involved in some of these platforms Oh, uh, what? Well, first I'll talk about what I've learned, and then I'll talk about how I got into it. Okay. Um, so what I've learned is that we often think on too small of a scale when it comes to 
really trying to help others. I've just been flabbergasted at at how much outreach, for example, Terry Sanowski and my Learning How to Learn course has. I mean, we've reached over 3 million learners wow. um, who've registered for the course. And and in in over 200 countries and all sorts of different languages and so forth. And so it kind of makes me laugh now when I'll see grant proposals saying, and we're going to reach hundreds of students. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh-huh. you can do a lot more. And you really uh-huh. need to do a lot more because right. if you look at how the world's population or even the United States population is growing, it's like, it's not only a drop in the bucket to reach hundreds, you're not even keeping up with, you know, the number of people who are out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and there are increasing, um, you know, numbers of people. So it's it's very important, I think, to think more broad scale. And a typical book, nonfiction book, sells on the, cop- on the, yeah, on the order of around, um, 3,000 copies. Wow, that's sad. But <laughs> you, you need to be, you know, it, it's important to, to try to reach much more broadly because, right. you know, the, we actually have the ability to do that now. It was actually kind of a fluke um, how I got on um, Coursera, and it was all thanks to my co-instructor, Terence Sanowski. Um, and I, I had given a, a talk on pathologies of altruism to the National Academy of Sciences. And um, it was a bit controversial because mm-hmm. it's kind of like, well, how can altruism, which is doing good for others, actually be bad sometimes? Because mm-hmm. Sounds like a great uh, TED um, Talk title. <laughs> it, it, yeah, well, it, it, you know, it, like it doesn't compute for a lot right, of people. Right, that's what they like on that but, controversial yeah, title. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, it turns out that um, when you want to do good for other people, you kind of have to step back and say, is it really doing good for other people or mm-hmm. is it just making me feel good? Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's what I spoke about. And uh, and sure enough, the audience was like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. they're a bunch of buddy-duddy old scientists and, um, <laughs> you know, are you sure about it? But but this one guy, my moderator, was he, he like, interrupted mean questions and said, no, 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 I want to ask my question. Uh-huh. And, and he kept throwing these really nice questions that helped me bring out, and it turned out my moderator was Terence Sanowski, who uh, uh-huh. is, he's the Francis Crick professor at the Salt. Salk Institute, uh-huh. and he's one of only 12 living human beings who are simultaneously a member of the National Academy of Sciences, of Medicine, and of Engineering. Wow. And so um, so anyway, we were talking afterwards, and he, he really liked the talk. And he was like, Barb, you know, actually, that was a great talk, but there's there's another really important area in this in this country, and that relates to learning in math and science in education in that regard. And I said, well, Terry, it just happens I'm, I'm working on a book about that. And he was like, well, can I write the foreword? And I was like, can I just go to heaven, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, and so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. really, uh-huh. and so then um, MOOCs were coming out, and I said, Terry, let's do a MOOC. Yeah. And he um, he opened all the doors, and so 
we were able to do a MOOC on it together, mm-hmm. and uh, which is a massive open online course. And the rest is history. It's it's long been one of the very um, most popular MOOCs. Um, actually, wow. all three of my MOOCs are in the top ten MOOCs of all time. Wow. Uh, actually, I should say Terry's in my MOOCs. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and so it's it's really been a great way of reaching out. And I think part of the popularity is that usually a lot of education material, like this is how you learn effectively, mm-hmm. comes from people who don't have a background in neuroscience. And yet there's so much from neuroscience that's really informative. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think people love w- what we're teaching about because it's practically useful. But at the same time, it's also something that uh, is very well grounded on good science. Well, you know, I love anything that deals with, uh, you know, the mind and and the science behind things. I, I, when I had Albert Bandura on the show, it was one of those pinch me moments, like you're talking about, you know, you get these famous people oh, and, yeah. and you're just like, this is such a cool person <laughs> to speak with about this. Because I'm like you, I, I have some MOOCs and different things. I've done, I've taught more than a thousand um, online classes in, in throughout my time, a lot more than that probably now. And uh, it, it's interesting, as you were talking about how many people are in these courses, I, 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 I have done one with uh, FutureLearn where the very first day there was a couple thousand in class, you know, and, and it's a different setup than the classes that you teach like universities for at you know different times mm-hmm. when I've worked at universities and I still do work for multiple universities where you, you you get you know 25 people in a class maybe or something like that and it's but it, I like the asynchronous teaching um I, I love that first of all because I like to do it at five in the morning at four in the morning and nobody's crazy enough to get up that early to take my classes but um what do you like about teaching um in that kind of way in a MOOC or you know in the asynchronous course Oh, gosh, so many things that I feel kind of like a spoiled little kid now, you know, (laughs) after having taught for Uh decades at the university. Uh Um, The the course is really self-sustaining, and people answer questions. Could it be a little more perfect if I spent all day, every day, only on one course? Probably. Mm But it's it's a it's about as good a balance as you can get, and clearly with you know ten thousand people on average signing up every week, it's it, it is a it's a tra- set of trade offs that people still find worthwhile. Yeah. But I have to say, um, your work on now I'm going to have to go look up your course on FutureLearn <laughs> because I I really like the FutureLearn platform. That's a really uh-huh. it's a very, it's a highly respected platform. Um, I mean, Coursera is very highly respected, and they are just wonderful to work with. But I I do have to say there is something seamless and intuitive about that FutureLearn platform. 
you must have really enjoyed putting your course on. It was a lot of good, uh, it was a great experience. They did a good job, uh, you know, interacting. I had created, you know, I use LearnPress as a plugin on my WordPress site, which I can create free little courses and different things on there to, you know, to give it a, a little bit about curiosity or perception of my different books, right? And so I said, uh-huh. well, I have, th-. they they contacted me and I go, well, I have this, you know, that I give away for free that's just, you know, and they go, well, we could start with that and add a bunch, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, all right. And it, it's been great. We we get great reviews. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's just a different uh, way of getting information out there. And I've always mm-hmm. liked MOOCs ever since they came out. I used to actually, I was an editor in chief of an online education website, and my first um, book I ever wrote was about online education. I think in like. I mean, it's been a long time, you know. I've taught online since 2006. And so I love it. And it's always been a passion for me. And so I started to worry it was going to go away to some extent. And then now, because of COVID, I think it's going to come back in full force uh, because people see, you know, you need these options. Um, are, Are you seeing more people taking your classes now in this current climate? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's so exploded. Yeah. It's like a lot of weeks it's been five times the normal. So we're approaching 50,000 a week signing up. Wow. Um, The the thing that I think is, you know, here's the funny thing. So you'll hear from professors Mm -hmm. who study this area that, uh, oh, online teaching is never as good as face to face. But when you go look at the professors who are writing this, and you look at their online courses, they stink. Yeah, yeah. Because they it's don't know terrible. how to do it. Yeah. Well, and not only do they not know how to do it, it's like they're so used to trapping students in the classroom. <laughs> I love the trapping. That's how that I look at when, it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that when they don't have students trapped anymore, like online, well, they don't like that. And so their research is almost geared to, you know, underpin their their Uh thoughts that, oh, well, this isn't as good because, you know, students can get away from me. Uh, Uh And so, you know, you have to almost, like, sometimes I look at research that says online isn't as good, and it's laughable it's like right. well we put some um some uh links to pdfs online and that's the online version of the course uh, yeah, it's hard to and say. we compared that with face to face and it wasn't as good it's mm-hmm. like duh you yeah. didn't even bother to do a video right right uh, not even a cruddy video and so it's it just does make me it, laugh it does uh, you know it's funny because i've um gone to school i mean i've graduated from arizona state university but i've also gone to online universities i've done i've taken them i've taught them i've done it both ways you know and i learned by far more in online courses i I, and and asu has online courses that are great you know but i just happened to take their regular courses when i went back because that back in the day they didn't have any others but um i think that it's it's a question of the of how it's delivered like you said i i'm not a big fan of sitting through lectures i just i can't i'm, I'm too hyperactive i can't sit in a classroom all day long I, I i do feel like i'm held captive but i think it's a good thing for a lot of people and and for my kids i wanted them to have that experience of going to campus and and having the college experience i i, I kind of like the undergrad 
um, thing uh, in person just for the experience, just so you have a comparison. But I think in general, learning should be lifelong and could be everywhere. And I think you know, there's no reason why everything can't be available online. So I, I'm a huge advocate of online education. And I'm curious how much your military background um, influenced your style of how you do things. I was looking at what you've done. I mean, you were a communication expert, South Pole Station, Antarctica. Ouch. That was, <laughs> I had somebody else on my show who was stationed there. She, she was at six months or so. How long were you there? Oh, uh, about the same. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, though, that's where I met my husband. I always say I had to go to the end of the earth oh, that's South cute. Pole to meet that man. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we fell in love. And he whisked me off to New Zealand where we got married. And uh, and it's been happily ever after for, what, 30-some years now. So um, that's, it's... Congratulations. Uh, yeah, it was a lucky thing. But it. I think all of those experiences, working out on Soviet trawlers up on the Bering Sea, um, you know, as a military officer in West Germany, and so what it does, and, and even learning Russian, is when I'm teaching, mm -hmm. I'm really aware that, you know, there's a broader world than just being a professor of whatever. <laughs> um, I've heard because that. a lot of professors, that's all they do is I they know. just go through this one little pipeline and then they end up a professor and they think that that's the world. And it's not, they, they yeah. can't understand when students aren't like, you know, they're, they're like, they should love this, this material and, you know, they should want to learn it for the desire of learning and they shouldn't be caring about what their scores on the test are. And I'm like, that's such Baloney. It is, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it matters what your grade is. And yeah. Well, especially if you're going to go on to medical school or something, but in general, not too absolutely. many people are looking at your grades. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Uh -huh. um, it's what do they learn, that, though? What, what do they learn in I, no, learning? Hours? No, I'm saying it's more important to me that they learn, not what their grade is. Uh, it is. And that is important, but I really understand where people are coming from when they say it's the grade that's important. Hmm. Because, for example, I took a class once, and I studied so hard. I did every single extra problem, and that was like dozens and dozens of problems, in in the textbook. I read the textbook. I watched all the lecture. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I knew everything inside and out, and I flunked the test. Wow. I missed all 10 questions. How? And the reason was he had put this one little assumption that you have a 0.7 volt drop across the diode. Uh. And unless you knew this assumption, you couldn't do anything anywhere on the test. Well, most people did just fine. Mm -hmm. Why? They had old tests. Uh. And I didn't. I was just learning what you were you know, supposed mm -hmm. to be learning. It's like so he's trying to trick you, huh? Uh, um, he didn't realize he oh. was trying to trick us. He taught the course so many times that he didn't—he wasn't aware that this one time he hadn't actually told them this assumption we were supposed to, to be making. Mm -hmm. So he didn't do it on purpose, but so often there are things that professors do either on purpose or mm -hmm. not on purpose that are, in essence, a form of trickery. Yeah. Um, from a student for perspective. 
And so, um, you know, a lot of times I think professors really believe, oh, you know, you should learn it for the sake of learning. But actually, they are putting across some trickery. And so you need to be test wise, as well as, you know, actually knowing the material, if you want to get the kinds of grades that are going to keep you motivated. I talk about this, my upcoming book is uh, Learn Like a Pro with my wonderful co-author, Olaf Scheve. And uh, so that's coming out from St. Martin's. And we talk about some of the tricks that can help you to be test-wise as well as, you know, being uh, knowledgeable about the material itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Just because it ties into my research and curiosity, because I think when you're talking about some of the classes you did well in and things, the classes I did the worst in were like history based because it was strictly memorization and I'm terrible at that. Um, and and <laughs> I mean, it's just horrible because it was all dates and it was not my kind of thing. And what I, I think it's interesting when I started to study what kept people uh, from being curious, um, there's the I mean thousands of people I researched for my um, the you know across years of studying this and it, it turned out that there's four things and it's fear, assumptions the things you tell yourself, uh, technology uh, over and under utilization of it and environment so basically like that teacher had a strong impact on me obviously and it made me curious about algebra. But, you know, you think back, a lot of my algebra, I mean, my history teachers were like, as I started yesterday, we're, you know, and that's <laughs> a monotone thing, you know what I mean? And it kind of set me to not like it. But as I got older, I'm starting to be able to handle history a little bit more. Do you deal with those kinds of issues with people of, you know, what the impact of their level of curiosity, their experiences, their fears and things like that? Well, uh, I, I think a lot of my work is direct exactly toward that, mm-hmm. um, towards kind of helping people dig out of inadvertent assumptions they've made that um, that kind of lead them to think that they can't learn something new right. and different. And it, there's, I mean, there's a mixture of things. I mean, I don't want to go all Pollyanna and say, yes, you can learn everything. And, you know, if your quantum <laughs> physics is your bag and you want to be equal uh-huh. to Albert Einstein, you can do it. Because uh-huh. that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the other side of things, the, the people can, they can be highly successful, even at things that they, they believe they never had a talent for. Because a lot of it is just creating those neural pathways by using practice and, and intelligent ways of approaching their learning. And it, it can make a, a tremendous difference in people's success. They don't have to be a natural at something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like learning to drive a car. Now, you know, if you set yourself up to compare with Mario Andretti, you're never going to get there. Uh-huh, right. But if if you set yourself up to say, hey, I can learn to drive a car and I can get to the store by driving the car, 
it doesn't matter if you're Mario Andretti or not. You can still be really successful at being able to drive to the store. And that's the same way it is with learning coding, learning um, math, learning a new language, whatever you're learning. You know, you don't need to be some genius. You, you just need to be kind of good enough and persistent, and you would be amazed at what you can do. Yeah, you know, that's a really important point. And I was thinking, as you were saying that, when I um, was doing my research, uh, I, I would hire psychometric statisticians to, at the beginning because I hated statistics when I used to take it. I loved math in the day, but once you got into statistics, I started to lose me calculus and that, you know, uh -huh. wasn't my favorite. And, um, but, you know, I had to take it three times because you had to take it for your bachelor's, your master's, and your doctorate, right? And so... The, right. I had the basics, and as I was working with them, I started to remember some of what I had learned, and, and they, they really didn't have my vision for what I wanted to do, so I went back and I taught myself some of the factor analysis and things, you know, because I knew statistics as it was, but when I saw a real purpose for it, what a difference, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? You, when you finally go, oh, you're going to need this. I'm thinking of the Peggy Sue got married where she goes in class when she's old and she goes back in time and she's taking the algebra class and she says to the professor, I know from personal experience I'll never use this in my life. Well, sometimes if you don't use it, you feel it's that way, right? Yes, exactly right. I remember I got called in to the dean of students when I was in high school because I refused to do anything but just read my book of fiction um, during um, algebra classes, and and I remember telling her, I will never use this in my life, and I am not going to pay attention. They never bothered me again, so whatever I said to her actually worked, and I so laughed because I was so wrong. Yeah, it's, you know, I just finished watching The Queen's Gambit. Did you watch that by chance, where she's the... Oh, that's on our list oh, you'll of love things it. to do, because I've heard from so many that it's fantastic. Well, I kind of related to her in this, because she would see the chess pieces uh, in bed at night. She would look up at the ceiling, and she could, like, picture what the chessboard looked like and, and foresee her next move. And, and that teacher, that, that algebra, I got so interested in algebra at that age that... I would take, I would look at the clock and I would reduce it to lowest form, you know, <laughs> like if it was 927, it became one third or whatever it was. And you start having these, this, it gets into your, you um, in this way that, you know, if you become passionate about something, you don't, who would have ever thought you would care enough to do that is, I guess, my, my point. And I, I think I would like to take coding because I, I, I would like the logic behind it. And I did a little bit of coding in college, but I was, I'm old enough that back then they weren't doing that much. But uh, my daughter speaks all these languages and I, I think it would be really fun. What, what would you like to learn that you haven't learned? Oh, well, I'm working on Spanish. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite slow. I do my Duolingo every day. And I just, I, I so Duolingo. wish that it was kind of like my days of learning Russian where I could really focus intently for like all day and be speaking it all day. Yeah. Getting drunk. You uh -huh. know, it's the Russian style. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but actually kind of is. And, um, um, but so I'm really working on um, on Spanish. But the big thing I do try to do is I, I read a book a week and I try to do on, you know, all sorts of different things. So, you know, now I'm reading a book on causality, uh, 
by Judith mm. Pearl, and it's a wonderful book, which never gave me, I, I never got this kind of insight onto probability and statistics when I was taking those courses. Yeah. And this goes beyond and shows what probability and statistics cannot do, and kind of how it went off track because of Pearson. Remember mm. that Pearson oh. coefficient? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful book. And then uh. I just finished uh, one, you know, not too long ago on the last stand for Custer and sitting boy, you know, wow. uh, uh, That's a and it was a, uh-huh. yeah, it's a really, it's a great book. Now I'm reading one also on the emotions, um, that by a researcher in that area, that's fantastic. Hmm. And there's a great one. I just, uh, you know, so I, I like bought between books, but it's mm-hmm. on, it's called the last assassin and it's about Caesar's. Um, all of Caesar's killers and how they were tracked down and killed. Oh my God, the start to that book is like the best start to a book I've read <laughs> in forever. Like, uh, it's like, huh. uh-huh. it's the last guy and he's kind of <laughs> waiting and he sort of knows what's pending and the boy, talk about a great hook. Ah, that sounds really good. You know, that's so funny. Did I, I was trying to think what, you know, I, I the last book that I really loved that I read was Range. I haven't. Did you ever read Range? Oh yeah. I, I like yes. things like yep. that. Um, I, I I like a lot of. I I just have a very difficult time getting through an entire book. I find I jump around. I'll start in a couple and then I'll run, You know, I, I'll have three or four of them going. But I cannot read novels. I only read fiction. So I try to to. Yeah, um, same I, for me. Is it the same? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can very only rarely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like to learn things, yeah. and you know, you're just learning. But I, I loved the movies, though. I, I, I guess maybe I lack imagination, and maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Oh no, no, no! Don't <laughs> say that. I know. That's There's my in assumption. your mind that you're lacking. Yeah, I know. And you're not. I mean, you I, have. I, you I have know, a lot of imagination. Yeah, yeah, for certain things. But I mean, when you're reading a book, I, I get, I get focused on the um, adjectives, and as a, you know, I start criticizing the, the, you know, the the writing styles and things as I'm, I'm reading in that way because it's not. It's like his black flowing eyes were like bats, and the, you know, and I'm start, and I get distracted because I'm like, why don't you just say his eyes are dark, you know? <laughs> and then I get off <laughs> on the topic on that. So that's why I don't oh. read a lot. This is so funny, but you you've yeah. done so many books, and they're just I, I was so impressed with all the stuff that you've worked on, and I thought that we were going to have so much fun talking about this because I, I love that you have a mind for numbers and that you teach people how to learn and all the things that you do, and I think so many people could benefit from taking your courses and reading your books. So how can they find you? Oh, so I'm at if they just go to barbaraoakley.com. Um, but after, after they have read um, the Curiosity Code, so uh, so cracking the Curiosity Code oh, is is, nice. is the first go to. But uh-huh. then they can go to um, uh, my website, and that's barbaraoakley.com, and there's links to all my books and um, and the courses and so forth. Oh, well, Barbara, this was so much fun. I'm so glad we were able to connect, and thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure, and so thank you again. Oh, you're welcome, and we will be back right after this message. Curiosity is a critical and direct link to improving motivation and communication-based issues that challenge organizations. By improving workers' curiosity, you can enhance employee engagement, emotional intelligence, innovation, productivity, and many other byproducts that come with that intrinsic but underutilized attribute. 
To find out more about how to improve curiosity, please go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Isabel Pujol, who is the founder and CEO of Pluribus, a global consultancy committed to develop individuals, teams, and organizations to succeed through diversity and inclusion. Their motto is, at Pluribus, we believe in a world where everyone belongs. It's so nice to have you here, Isabel. Thank you. I'm very, very delighted. Well, I was looking forward to this because I get into a lot of inclusion and diversity discussions. Um, we talked a little before the, uh, we got on the air. I'm in Arizona, which is not far from California here in the U.S. And I know in California, they recently had a, a law change that where they wanted to have a certain amount of women on board of directors. And, you know, so that brings up a lot of discussions. And I, I think that, you know, it, there's a lot of discussions about women in, in general on this show, just because I, I get a lot of experts, but I, I want to get into your background of um, what led to your interest in this area and just, you know, a little bit about Pluribus, uh, if you could just give us a little backstory on you. All right. So first of all, I want to say I'm French, even though <laughs> I live in Belgium, but I, I feel really European and I would say even I feel as a, as a true global citizen. So I haven't lived in France for more than 25 years now. Hmm. And I was uh, fortunate enough to work for a global organization where I started to work on the topic of diversity and inclusion more than 25 years ago. So I've seen uh, you know, how the, the topic, the agenda was really evolving throughout the, the years. So initially you know, in that company, uh, which was in the oil industry, I was one of the first uh, women actually working in, uh, in leadership teams. So my first uh, interaction with the diversity and inclusion topic was really on the woman issue. And uh, step by step, you know, it was very obvious that it was important to go beyond woman, to go beyond gender and to address actually inclusion and diversity at a, at a, at a bigger uh, standpoint. So I have, personally, uh, a full passion for inclusion. So I really believe that uh, inclusion, uh, and by inclusion, I mean, you know, how you can create uh, the, the, the right environment for people to feel that they belong, that they, they can contribute, that their, their voices are, are heard. So inclusion is the foundation for any diversity aspects to flourish. So while I was working in this uh, global organization and I, I, I took up the role of one of the first uh, diversity and inclusion managers at that time, I was able to look at it from various angles. I was working on you know, defining the strategy. I was working in engaging the top management. And then of course, I was working into uh, implementing it in a way that it was uh, meaningful for the different operations, business units, uh, and countries. So from that experiences, when I set up Pluribus, uh, nearly 15 years ago, actually, uh, my, my intent, my intention was really to, uh, to focus on how to create environments in, in various organizations, regardless of the industries, how do you create that inclusive environment where every individual can, can feel happy. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, 
no more than that. Well, you know, that's so important. And I've worked in so many industries. So the fact that you mentioned regardless of industry is interesting to me. Just from what I've seen in, I've worked in agricultural chemicals and in software, in lending, in pharmaceuticals, in education. I mean, just the different industries, uh, hospitality. I'm trying to think of all the industries I've worked in. Um, I, I see a big difference of how women are treated in the different areas. Uh, I mean, when I was in pharmaceuticals, I felt like it, it was completely um, equal, the men and the women. I, di I didn't have the sense of any difference. When I got into education, I saw a huge difference of how the w women were treated versus the men. And when I, I also in um, agricultural chemicals, a big difference. There was no women really in that industry. And when I was in it in the eighties, you know, it's been a while. So what are you seeing as the differences by industry? That's a very, very good question, because if I'm thinking about my experience, uh, you know, dealing now with uh, a lot of organizations, we are really fortunate uh, mm -hmm. with Pluribus to work with uh, and partner with a lot of uh, global organizations. You know, I will not be able to name all, all of them, but, you know, companies like L'Oréal, Sodexo, Heineken, Hilti, Buller, Microsoft, um, uh, Chanel, and, and I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a lot of NATO. So really, really different, different organization, different industries. And I would say that the, 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 the goal uh, in terms of creating inclusion, uh, meaning, you know, what do we mean by inclusion in this organization? What, um, uh, how we could create inclusive HR management processes, for example, there are some commonalities. Uh, now looking at women in particular, um, I think from, from the recruitment standpoint, when I'm, when I'm talking to, to, to younger women, uh, especially you know, uh, in, in today, I mean, in the last you know, few couple of years, I think there is this tendency for women to believe that there is a very strong uh, equality you know, when they are, they have been recruited by organization, they are joining new teams. So when we talk about the gender topic, uh, especially with these younger women, regardless of the industry, it's, um, it's, it's more or less the, you know, similar. I think the, the, the tipping point, the, the, the big turn, turn, turning point is actually when they realize that it might they might encounter some uh, glass ceiling. And it depends on the industry. And this is where there is a difference. So for example, in the, um, yeah, in, in, some, in some industries that some women feel that they don't have access uh, really to, uh, to, to, to management, uh, managerial roles. But uh, really, I mean, if I want to be really honest, I don't see a major difference by industry. Yeah. yeah. Of the woman topic. Well, you know, it, it's interesting to me just because I my next book is on perception, and I was looking uh, on your site, and I know you had a, a piece on um, unconscious bias, which ties into a lot of what I've researched, and I like the quote that you had from Carl Jung about um, what we fail to bring to our awareness appears in our lives as fate, and uh, I, I think it's really in such a huge topic to talk about perception 
and how we only, you, you know, we're seeing a lot of that now with um, our political system here. People watch the same things that just confirmation bias, you know, of what, what you think that you, you want to hear. You just keep reading and, and seeing more of the same kind of thing. Are you dealing with that with these companies? Because uh, I, I, I thought it was really interesting that you did a piece on, on your site about that. Yes. So again, everything is around uh, inclusion. And biggest obstacles to inclusion is all the dismantled models and mm -hmm. all these you know, assumptions and all the unconscious biases that we might have, you know, most often influenced by so many stereotypes in our societies in general. So that's why we would address the, the topic of unconscious bias at a very uh, important level. Because I think what is important is for all of us uh, to recognize that we are all biased because of all these influences in, through the, the media, through the, uh, you know, the, the different uh, external factors. We're hearing so many things. So if we're not careful, if we are not consciously uh, aware of this uh, impact, you, you might you know, fall into that trap and, yeah. and be exclusive or sometimes having a, a discriminatory uh, you know, behavior, but without noticing it. So we need to, to stop, to pause, yeah. to think, to reflect, and then you know, act. I think that's really important because uh, you know I, I I created a, a way to to determine the factors that impact perception and and the things that you're talking about are, you know are really what I found in my research that it's a kind of a combination of IQ EQ but our CQ our cultural quotient but also our CQ our curiosity quotient um, that questioning of things and and in my research in curiosity I've, I, I you use the word assumptions and that's one of the things that keeps us from being curious and I really think we need to be curious to to have this inclusion because you have to develop the sense of empathy which is such a big part of emotional intelligence and to do that you have to ask questions right and so i how how are um you dealing with developing like curiosity in people so that they can get this inclusion wow that that's i mean this is spot on everything is about curiosity yeah. and everything is about asking the right question in, in, a, in a very respectful way. So the way we are, uh, we are dealing with it uh, in, in, in Pluribus is by creating the uh, inclusive environment for people to speak up, to take the time to reflect on experiences, to hear other, other people's experiences because empathy is also um, a way of connecting with the, with the a lot of you know experiences. Uh, if we go back to the to the topic of men and women, how many times when women are talking about their own experiences to men, men are just opening up their ears, saying, "Oh, I had no clue. I didn't know about that." So our role as you know facilitators in the diversity and inclusion field is to create the safe space for people from any organizations, managers, employees, leaders, to speak up, to speak up about their own uh, emotions and how they can be authentic and be uh, themselves uh, to, to, to thrive. And I really believe that curiosity, but again, in a respectful way, 
curiosity is the, the, the key to open the door and have conversations. So right. it's, uh, it's, it's really about asking questions, but in, a, you know, in an inquiry uh, way, in a, in, a, in a positive way to, 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 to grow together, to learn from each other. You know, it was so fascinating to create my research in curiosity because my whole goal was to find out what keeps people from being curious because you can measure curiosity of high or low, but what good does that do you if you're on the low level? And I wanted to figure out what stopped people. And so what I found was the things that keep people from being curious are fear, assumptions, as you mentioned before, technology, either over or under utilization of it and environment, you know, all the impact of people around you. And as you, you know, you were talking about how they, you know, men versus women, they don't know what to ask and they didn't know that what they didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And, and going back to your quote of Carl Jung, when I used to train teams in the day when Myers-Briggs was more popular, we would put people on opposite sides of the room based on their type of personality, their dichotomy. And you'd learn about the person that had the opposite uh, of your personality. And people would be stunned, you know, they'd go, why would you like that? I wouldn't like that. And you'd learn all these things about the other people. And I really think that's what we need to get to, to do more of is because you know what you are, but you, you, until you ask questions and find out about other people, you'll never get that sense of empathy to, to improve your perception. To, to be more inclusive, because we're not going to really have to agree with everybody else's perspective, but you at least you'd understand why they feel the way they do. And, and, and I think that would uh, avoid a lot of the miscommunication and the conflict. So I, I, you, you wrote the book, Inclusion Around the Clock, to help, of course, with global diversity and inclusion. Are these uh, types of subjects that you're talking, that you write about? What, what's in your book? I want to hear more about that. Thank you. Well, just uh, and I, I will talk about the, the book. Just one uh, one point because indeed we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. We are making so many assumptions, also just based on what we see. Right. Uh, and there are so many other elements what makes us unique that needs to be you know more visible if we are allowed to talk about it in a respectful way and if we can be fully authentic. So just to to you know summarize the fact that. At the end of the day, every one of us, what do we want to, to, to why, why we're working, why we are in this uh, you know, work environment, it's to feel that we belong to a, an organization, to a team. We want to have our uniqueness, fully valued and, and, and be ourselves. So to make the link with the book, um, initially uh, we really wanted to celebrate the fact that uh, you know, a few years ago we celebrated our 10th anniversary of Pluribus. So um, we were looking at some uh, potential ideas on how to celebrate and we realized because we are a global organization, we, we, we like talking about Pluribus as a global organization because we have uh, you know, 50 uh, Pluribus associates from all over the world talking different languages, uh, having some deep knowledge about the different cultures, with so many skills, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, uh, you know, amazing people who are working uh, with us at Pluribus. So we said, how could we leverage that? And so what we did, we, we, we wrote uh, inclusion around the clock uh, with uh, actually 13 different uh, chapters. And each chapter is written by one of our Pluribus colleagues from a different region. 
Hmm. Uh, looking at uh, what diversity and inclusion means for them as an individual, but also in their, you know, in their region. So you have various, um, you know, uh, chapters, uh, whether it's about, um, you know, the, the, the approach of the head, the heart and the hands to have um, learning interventions that are really mobilizing um, the, the whole self of, um, you know, the, the, the fullness of, uh, of participants, whether it's about uh, focusing on gender balance, one is on curiosity. So, you know, there's one chapter on cultures as well, on generations. Um, we have, uh, you know, the, the, the whole topic about uh, working uh, as an expatriate in a different countries. Oh. So we, we, we're having, uh, uh, actually, we wanted to celebrate the, di the, the different aspects of diversity and inclusion from the, the different dimensions, but also from the different cultures. So this is really a, a book full of, you know, ideas and testimonies. And, and the fact that Pluribus is, by definition, I would say, a laboratory for inclusion, because the way we are driving our business, the way we're working with clients and partners, you know, we, we really want to walk the talk. So DNI for us is a is a value. I mean, we we want to uh, to, to 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 be totally uh, um, embedding the DNI values, the way we are dealing with our with, uh, with different teams, with managers, and the book is a, actually a reflection of that. So, uh, and I'm happy because we we just had a, a couple of weeks ago uh, the, the 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 new edition of the book. Oh, so we have started okay. another. Uh, another printing and and who knows we might have a a follow-up of that uh of that book well that's amazing did you have any of the 12 authors from the u.s so from the u.s let me see if i have so let's, i have a one from um from spain mm -hmm. from uh, the netherlands from turkey from uh malaysia from france from the uk from belgium from Switzerland, from Argentina, from Israel, wow, Spain, and in fact, the, the one person who is from the US um, is um, the ex-senior uh, VP for DNI for Sodexo, huh. Roini Annan, who is really one of the leading experts on DNI, you know, and, uh, and she really gave us a, a gift by writing the the, the, the four words uh, of a book. Well, that's amazing. Um, I, I, I just hear, you know, there's so many people on my show, we get into the Me Too movement and all the things that are happening here. Is it, is it different in the US than it is there in different countries? Of, are you seeing it that different from country to country? There is definitely some differences from country uh, to country because of the, the, the historical context, because the different uh, uh, sometimes legal, you know, uh, framework, um, the, the, the sophistication of the topic, the maturity of the topic. So when we are working with, uh, you know, the different countries, for example, in the US, we have a team of five people uh, who are based in, in, uh, and in, in the various uh, parts of the new US, inclu including in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Oh, that's about two <laughs> so hours from where I am. <laughs> 
okay. By car. Yeah, not far. That's okay. funny. What a small world. Um, so, for example, I mean, uh, you know, a few months ago, you know, we, we did a lot of work around uh, how to uh, uh, have courageous conversations uh, about, uh, you know, the, the race topic. So we have a lot of, uh, you know, clients, partners with whom we are, you know, hosting a number of, uh, you know, workshop, virtual workshop where people can have this conversation about how, what is their role in fighting, uh, you know, racism? How do we become a, an ally? How could we act as change agent? So for example, this, you know, piece of work that is really uh, um, present at the moment in, in, in the US we are with our uh, clients in the US, we, we started to do some work also on the race topic in, um, in Europe uh, recently with another client. The, the aim, the goal is the same. The way we will address it, we will frame it, will be different from one country to another, just okay. because you need to respect the different journey. Well, as you were getting in all these 12 authors and their insights, what, I mean, was there anything that surprised you or what was the most interesting thing that you learned from just getting other people's perspectives? I think I, I was more amazed and surprised by the commonalities than by the differences. That's um, the, the, the commonalities of a common passion to play a positive uh, impact in the world. So regardless on how you are coming to the topic, whether it's on gender, generation, uh, LGBTQ, race, um, disability, and you know, all, all the different diversity dimensions, um, I think that there is a very strong commonalities, which is about, you know, what do we do to ensure that people can fulfill their potential, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, how could we do for people to be authentic? How could we do? So it, it was more, you know, for me, the, 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 the insight was more about the commonalities. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the talks I give, I always say, you know, we're actually have more in common and more alike than we realize and that we need to focus on that and I, I think that that's so important because it's it's a challenging time here in the U.S. I don't know um, you know if it's as challenging in, in other parts as what we've had uh, experienced recently and and I'm just curious if you're seeing a big difference by generation. Um, I'm currently working on a generation uh, um, project mm -hmm. uh, for one global organization, but from with uh, with the uh, European route. Um, and the, we, we did some survey with the various generations, and we realized that the, the again it's again creating the space for people to speak up and have the conversation because there are a lot of different stereotypes or assumptions from one group to another. Um, and one of the key findings was the, the imbalance between the, the transfer of knowledge, for example, uh, coming from the older generation right. to the uh, give me enough space 
so I can create, innovate from the younger generation. So, but as soon as the, the generation are speaking up about this, you know, barriers, obstacles, suddenly they realize that there is so many bridges and, uh, and by, by building the bridges, then you could come up with a situation where it's a win-win for everyone. Right, right. And I like that, the, the, um, the thought of having the bridge. And I think what you're working on is so um, important. And I was really excited to have you on the show. I think a lot of people are going to want to know how to follow you and how to get your book and just to learn more. Is there some kind of link or something you'd like to share? So we, we do uh, have a, a, you know, a LinkedIn. We have, uh, you know, Facebook. You could follow us on our, uh, you know, all our social uh, social networks. Uh, we we have links to, uh, to you know if you want to buy the book, if you want to have more information about what we do and how we do it. Um, so happy to to you know send links. I don't know what yeah, the best. I, I was at the your pluribus site was very interesting, and I, I I was able to get your book on Amazon, and you know it looks like you guys are pretty easy to find. But and I think uh, what you're working on. You know, it's so important, and we're, we're, I, this conversation is going to be something that continues on. But I love that you got all these twelve different insights and thirteen chapters. You know, as you mentioned, uh, from all these different people, uh, and I think a lot of people could learn a lot from what you're doing. So it was really nice to have you on the show, Isabel. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Thank you, Diane, for the opportunity that I could share my passion for inclusion. Oh, it was great. And uh, we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. If you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank both Barbara and Isabel for being my guests today. We get so many great guests on this show. If you've missed any past episodes, you can catch them at drdianehamilton.com. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.